Father God, what a privilege it is to be able to gather with others to worship you. When we do this, Father, we're, we're cognizant of the fact that we're coming into your very presence, that you are here with us. And we would ask that by the power of your spirit, you would be our teacher this morning, that we would read and understand your word. And because of that, we would understand you better as well as ourselves. Teach us now, we pray, in the very precious, very unique name of Jesus, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, Matthew says that when the women approach the tomb, uh, an angel casually announces to the women that Jesus is not here. In fact, this is what we read in Matthew 28. Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Mark, uh, the writer of the Gospel of Mark, of course, puts it this way. He says that an angel says, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. Uh, he has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Luke, or the writer of the Gospel of Luke, obviously, tells us that the angels ask the women a question. Here's their question. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee. And then John uh, tells us in his gospel that the angels who were actually sitting where Jesus' body had been laying, they actually ask Mary a specific question. They say, woman, why are you weeping as if to say it's Easter? There's no crying on Easter. <laughs> There's only rejoicing. There should be no crying. And uh, there you have it. That is the extent of the descriptions that we have in Scripture of this thing called the resurrection. That's it. Uh, arguably, this is the most significant event in all of human history, and all the accounts are very underwhelming. They're very understated, just matter of the fact, if you will. There's no attempt uh, at all to explain how this happened. There's, there's no lengthy theological discussion about it. Uh, there's no editorializing. There's no attempt to hype the story whatsoever. Essentially, the Bible just says Jesus rose as he said he would. Uh, you'll not find him here. He's no longer in the tomb there. That's the facts. That's kind of it. And then the Bible tells us what Jesus did after the resurrection. Do you remember uh, what Jesus did after the resurrection? Uh, some of you might be thinking, well, I, I know he ascended into heaven. And of course, that's true, but that's actually later. Uh, he could have perhaps ascended into heaven immediately. He could have come out of the tomb and headed straight to heaven saying, man, am I glad that's over. Uh, mangers and donkeys and wood shops and dirty hard work and people hating you and others trying to kill you and courts and whips and crosses. And now that that is all over and I'm back from the dead, heaven, here I come. He could have said that. 
and we would have understood. Uh, I could certainly understand if that was what had happened. Crucifixion, death, resurrection, and ascension. Boom, 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 boom. But that's not what happened. In fact, after Jesus' resurrection, he continues his ministry here on earth. And what I want to do this morning and for the next couple of weeks is reflect together from various angles, look at various aspects of this thing of the resurrection. Uh, after the resurrection, what Jesus enters into is a new phase of his ministry, a ministry where he is applying uh, what he did on the cross and what he did by coming back from the dead. It's actually a ministry of convincing, if you will. Talk about a good God. Talk about a patient God. Talk about a God who doesn't just save us, but also applies that salvation to us, even when we doubt, even when we fear, even when we don't get it. Jesus hangs around a little longer just so he can convince his followers that he was indeed alive. And I would just note that, that was not easy to do. It really wasn't. On the day of his resurrection, Jesus met Mary Magdalene. This, of course, is one of his most dedicated followers. And she was at the empty tomb and Jesus was beside her. And she looked Jesus straight in the eyes and accused him of stealing Jesus' body. She thought that Jesus was the gardener. But Jesus, who was committed to helping Mary believe what had happened, believe in the resurrection, Jesus looks at Mary and he calls her by her name. Mary, of course, was a really uh, good friend of Jesus. They'd spent a lot of time together. She has heard him teach. No doubt she had seen him heal. Uh, she was a devout follower, but she's not getting it. She's not understanding that Jesus is alive. And so Jesus asked Mary the same question that the angel had asked her. Woman, why are you weeping? She's still weeping. Whom are you seeking? He asks her. And Mary still mistakes Jesus for the gardener, and she wants to know where the gardener has put Jesus' body. And then Jesus says her name. He says, Mary, Mary. And when he says her name, that for some reason is what breaks through her blindness. And she immediately embraces him, we're told, and she clings to him as if to not let go. She's not going to miss him again, and she's hanging on to him. And you just have to ask, how good is Jesus? How kind is Jesus? How caring is Jesus? He doesn't rebuke her for her lack of faith. In fact, he tenderly helps her faith to grow. And I would just note that's what he does with you and that's what he does with me in our places of doubt or unbelief or disobedience. Now, here with Mary, Mary becomes convinced that Jesus is, in fact, alive. So convinced that she runs off to tell the other disciples, but when they hear it, well, uh, shock and surprise, they have trouble believing it too. Some of them run to the tomb just to check it out because they're thinking, no, nah, this, this is impossible. I mean, this, this doesn't happen. 
And so Jesus ends up meeting Peter and then John. And soon after that, he visits some disciples, we're told, that are on the road to Emmaus. You can read all about it in Luke chapter 24. The fact is, Jesus spends hours, even days, convincing his followers that he is, in fact, alive. He made appearances in Judea. He made appearances in Galilee. He made appearances uh, on mountains. He made appearances at the seashore there in Galilee. He ate meals with his followers. He prayed with them. He walked with them. He talked with them. He even made a special guest appearance for a cynical, hard-nosed skeptic. You know his name. Thomas. Thomas had heard all the reports. He had been observing first Mary and then other disciples saying, no, he really is. He's actually alive. We've seen him. We've talked to him. He's alive, I tell you. But Thomas couldn't buy it. Why? Well, because nobody comes back from the dead. We know that too. No matter how much you want that to be the case, no matter how great that would be, dead people Stay dead. That's the way it was then. That's still the way it is today. And so we can appreciate, I think, Thomas's doubting. Uh, Thomas actually said this to the disciples. He said, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, get this, I will never believe. In other words, I I need proof. I need proof of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, at this point, I can at least imagine Jesus being a a little angry, a little ticked, a little impatient, perhaps. Thomas is going pretty far here. I will never believe, he says. And that's shocking. But not as shocking as Jesus' response, I think. Jesus, motivated by a love that goes beyond anything I have ever been able to understand, makes a special appearance just for Thomas. And he challenges Thomas to believe. This is what he says. He says, put your finger here. So you see, Jesus knows what Thomas has said. That's interesting to me as well. Put your finger here, he says, and see my hands. And put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas' answer is famous, and I would add it's, it's quite profound. Thomas responds to Jesus' challenge by saying, my Lord and my God. Suddenly, all the years of Jesus' teaching and all the miracles that Thomas had witnessed Jesus do, making blind people see and deaf people hear and lame people walk and leprous people whole and even on occasion dead people alive. And now this, Jesus himself has come back from the dead. And Thomas sees immediately what this means. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. Jesus deserves his worship and yours and mine. And friends, I hope you see too that the resurrection, 
The resurrection is the, the bottom line of the Christian faith. In a way, it's the cornerstone. Our whole faith is predicated on the reality, on the genuineness, on the historicity of this thing coming up soon when we celebrate this thing of the resurrection. And I wonder, has it ever occurred to you that no other founder of any religion has ever claimed that they would die and come back to life to prove that what they said, what they did, what they taught, what they claimed was true. No one, absolutely no one has ever done that and actually come through except Jesus, except Jesus. And you know what? There's never been any serious challenges to the truth or to the historicity of Jesus' resurrection. None. That's why so many still today in our age believe in this thing called the resurrection. The evidence is compelling. You know, the Apostle Paul wrote to some people who were living in the southern part of the Greek peninsula. It's called Achaia. And this is what Paul wrote. He said, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He kind of wants us to see that everything in the life and in the death and in the resurrection of Jesus is in accordance with the scriptures. What scriptures is he talking about there? Old Testament. In accordance with the prophetic word of God as it's preached, as it was given to us in the Old Testament, in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. So you can go check it out. You can talk to them. You can find someone uh, who actually saw Jesus back from the dead, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born. He appeared also to me. And you remember the transformation that took place in the life of a man named Saul who persecuted the church, hated the church, wanted to stamp out the church. But when he met the risen Jesus Christ, it changed him completely forever. Friends, did you know that uh, Jesus carried out this ministry to doubters after his resurrection for 40 days before he finally does then ascend into heaven? Talk about, again, a good God, a patient God, a loving God, a caring God. This, this has always amazed me when I've reflected on this. Partly because it wasn't something I don't think Jesus had to do. I mean, he could have left us to ourselves to piece it together, to puzzle it out, to follow the clues, if you will. After all, a blood-stained cross and an empty tomb should be enough proof for anyone. What's interesting is it wasn't enough proof for anyone. But instead, so Jesus takes it upon himself to make it clear to doubters People reluctant to believe. People who didn't deserve it. Jesus wanted to make it crystal clear that he is alive. Jesus, for their sakes and for ours, because of our spiritual blindness, because of the weakness of our faith, because of his great love for us, carried out a ministry of opening blind eyes. And softening hard hearts. It's a ministry of convincing. Now, 
What I want us to remember is that Jesus is still carrying on this same ministry today. This ministry has never stopped. And again, he is not under obligation to convince anyone. It's not something we deserve or something that he owes us. But nevertheless, he's still involved in helping people discover that he is alive. He has conquered once and for all the problems of sin and death. And now today, Jesus uses different means than personally appearing to everybody. In fact, he even said that that would be the case. His final words to Thomas foretold that his methods were going to change. This is what he said in John 20. He says, uh, have you believed because you have seen me, Thomas? That's his question to Thomas. And he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He's referring to all of us and all of those who went before us, but after Jesus ascended into heaven. Jesus was pointing to the fact that many were going to believe in him after his ascension into heaven. And these are people who decided to believe without actually seeing Jesus. Now, occasionally we hear of Jesus appearing to people and those people coming to faith. And stories abound like this in certain Muslim contexts. I've heard some. I bet you've heard some. I have to admit, though, if I'm being honest, whenever I hear of personal appearances of Jesus, I mean, I'm always skeptical. I mean, I'm not going to definitively say that Jesus can't do that or doesn't do that or hasn't done that. But uh, I'm always skeptical if I'm being truthful. Because um, and, and I, the reason for my skepticism is I just know for a fact that that's not the normal way Jesus goes about convincing people that he is, in fact, alive. That's not the way he works today, usually. Uh, now, I need to add that just because Jesus is doing very few personal appearances doesn't mean that his hands are tied in any way or that he doesn't have the means to draw people to himself anymore because that simply wouldn't be true. In fact, uh, in the few moments that remain, I want to mention three ways that Jesus is still convincing people of the facts concerning his resurrection. And the first one is something called an effectual call. This is a good term to whip out at a small group Bible study or something like that just to show you know something. Effectual call. Uh, this is actually the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the Father. It's the work of Jesus. They all cooperate in this. Our confession of faith says this. It describes the, an effectual call this way. All those whom God has predestined to life and only those, he is pleased to effectually call at his appointed and accepted time by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to come to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. In this call, here's what he does. He enlightens their minds spiritually in a way effective to salvation, meaning they come to faith so that they understand the things of God. He takes away their heart of stone and he gives them a heart of flesh. He renews their wills and by his almighty power, he makes them determined to do what is good, meaning believe in Jesus, follow Jesus. This effectually draws them to Jesus Christ. Yet in such a way that they come completely freely, being made willing by his grace. From start to finish, it's the grace of God. The operative principle, the operative word here is grace. Now, experientially, this is sometimes described as kind of an inner spiritual tug. It's, it's like a nudge or a pull in God's direction that try as you might, you can't resist. You can't shake it. 
This inner call often takes on the form of an unexplainable restlessness in your soul. You start asking questions you've never asked before. And, and that restlessness is actually God vying for your attention. It's God loving you. It's God being good to you. And it might come in the life context of an illness or on the heels of a death of somebody you love and suddenly you start thinking about life after death. Is there such a thing? It might come at a time of discouragement or a time when you're doing some self-evaluation. It can be anything, the context. But all of a sudden, as I said, you find yourself asking these silly, crazy, stupid questions, questions that you don't normally ask, like, you know, what is my purpose in being here? Am I accomplishing anything, anything that's going to last, anything that's important? Am I on the right track? Am I on the wrong track? Where is all this leading? Where is it going to end? And then maybe you even start to analyze some of your relationships. Why relationships? Well, because relationships are always hard. Because of you <laughs> and because of them. Relationships are always hard. I know. Uh, are my relationships as healthy as they should be? Is my marriage strong and getting stronger? Am I parenting properly? Are my kids okay? Am I ruining my kids? Short answer, yes, you are ruining them. But <laughs> you start wondering, is there something more to life than I'm experiencing so far? Something that I've been missing. Is there a better way, a way that gives life direction and gives it purpose and gives it meaning? Is there a solution to all the brokenness that I keep discovering in myself? Is there a solution to my problem? My problem of sin. And when you're asking questions like that, understand that is the ministry of Jesus. That's the ministry of the Father. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit calling you and convicting you. And in those moments, the Holy Spirit points you directly to the risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? And in those moments, the Holy Spirit is powerfully working in the human heart. And when you get pointed in Jesus' direction, you know, he's talking too. And what Jesus is always saying is, yes, there is a better way, a more meaningful way. There is an alternative. In fact, I am the way, he would say. You will find it not in money, not in power, not in prestige, not in popularity, not in personal success, not even in religion. You will find it in relationship with me. That's where you find what you're looking for. Friends, the Bible contends that we need, each and every one of us, a relationship with a God who is in control. The world is not spinning out of control so that he can't address it and fix it and judge it. The Bible contends that we need a relationship with a God who is just, a God who is merciful, a God who is going to right all wrongs, a God who is going to justly punish evil and sin in the world and in us. The Bible contends that we need a relationship with a savior who forgives our sins and our failures and a friend who will give us power, power to become more like him. Jesus said this, he said, people can't come to me unless the father who sent me draws them to me. This concept of drawing is the same as the concept of effectual calling that I've been describing. God mercifully, graciously, 
reaches into a person's life and changes their heart, enlightens their mind so that they can understand spiritual truth. Very often we experience, as I said, we experience this call during some kind of existential crisis. Not always, but often. In fact, from time to time, God will make good use of calamities that happen in our lives. Financial crisis, illness, Family, discombobulation, accidents, divorce, failure, you name it. He will use these things to provide a necessary context for us to finally hear what is called his still small voice. That was the voice that Elijah heard when he had run and he was in fear and he was thinking his life was in jeopardy and God had abandoned him and abandoned the nation. And then he hears God's still small voice. And that, friends, is the work of Jesus, the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of our Father challenging you, speaking to you, reaching out to you, convincing you that he is alive, that he is God. And that he is who you need. It's Jesus drawing you to himself. It's an effectual call. Now, almost always in Jesus' effectual call of people to himself, the thing, of course, that he uses is this book right here. It's not sexy. I wish I had, you know, the 10 things that he uses that you need to go out. No, but this is it right here. It's this book, friends, the Bible. The Apostle Paul said, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Well, understand the word of Christ is nothing other than the Bible. What use are you making of the Bible? I just want to say to those of us who are among the ranks of the unconvinced, and we always have some folks that are in that category here with us, and we're delighted with that. But if you find yourself in the ranks of the unconvinced this morning, uh, maybe you were dragged here. Maybe you felt some compulsion to, to be here. But, but this book, the Bible, is a dangerous book for you. If you intend to stay within the ranks of the unconvinced, then whatever you do, don't read this book. And don't listen to teaching from this book. And don't give serious, careful attention to it. One of the reasons, this book, the Bible, is supernatural. It's not like any other book. The Apostle Paul said this, all scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God. It's supernaturally generated, supernaturally given. What is more, he says, it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. This book points directly, you understand, directly in a focused, laser-like way to Jesus, his coming, his, his priestly and prophetic and kingly ministry, his sacrifice, his resurrection. Jesus said to some Jewish leaders one time, these were leaders who were opposing Jesus. In fact, they were looking for ways to kill him and get rid of him. He was upsetting the religious apple cart. And this is what Jesus said to him. He said, you search the scriptures. And boy, did they. They knew the scriptures better than most or all of us. But they were abusing the scriptures. They were trying to use them for their own purpose. In fact, they were finding in their reading of it 
and application of it. They were finding their righteousness in the doing of those things rather than seeing their need of mercy from this God who's revealed in the Scriptures. They were perverting the Scriptures. Jesus says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. And yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You see, this book, the Bible, friends, is the primary vehicle through which we know Jesus. The primary vehicle through which we grow and become more like him. This book brings us face to face with the truth about who we really are and who God really is. That's what this book does. And once we know the truth about these important matters, well, then we have to come to grips with how we are going to deal with those truths. And all of a sudden, we've got decisions to make. You cannot be ambivalent about the Bible. If you're a follower of Christ, this book right here is your lifeline to Almighty God. It's what describes him to you. It's what describes you in light of him. It's what you need to understand him better. It's what you need to grow. If you have no habits of reading and interacting with and subjecting yourself to the teachings of this book, well, then you don't have the right habits. You're not going to grow. The writer of Hebrews says this about this book. He says, uh, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That's the problem with this book. You open it up, you start reading it, you think, oh my God, I'm guilty. Guilty of so many sins on so many levels. I need a savior. And then you discover Jesus. That's who Jesus is. It's the savior. You see the Bible, God's word, Jesus' word, Christ's Word exposes us to what and who we, we really are, and it points us to what and who we really need. Who we need for life, who we need for relationships, who we need for managing everything, everything we have, from our money to our stuff. It, 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 it's who we need for understanding our own sexuality, our marriages, our family, the marketplace, how to treat this planet that God has given us to be stewards over, how to treat our bodies, how to relate to and glorify Almighty God. Friends, it's all right here in the Bible. And it is the thing today more than any other that God uses to call people to himself and to help us grow spiritually to become more like Jesus. Now here at Deer Creek Church, God is working in the lives of people in many different ways, many different levels. They're, we're all in different places. We have people who already follow Jesus. They, they believe Jesus is alive. They're fully convinced of that truth. And, and, uh, and yet it's just possible we have people that while that's you, you're not making very good use of this, this book. 
Maybe you're not here often enough to hear it taught, or maybe you're not in a small group where, you know, others are gathering around and talking about aspects of the teachings of this book. And I would just plead with you, don't, don't be that person. Don't do that. Make, make every use possible you can to understand and apply this book. Now, we know, too, we've also got people here who aren't convinced And I alluded to this earlier, but let me just say, uh, we love the fact that we know we have people here that are just figuring it out, you know, asking questions. And we're honored to have both. We want people here to to have the space and the time to sit, to think, to listen, to reflect on on God's truth and and be taught by it. And there's a reason why why we, we want people to have that space. If I'm being honest, I just have to say that I believe this book, the Bible, that when it is faithfully taught and faithfully preached, eventually over time, God will very, very, very often use it to convince you, me, all of us, that Jesus is who he claims to be. And admittedly, for some, my gosh, that takes weeks or months or years. That's not the point, really. The point is that God's word is powerful. God's word does change us. If we listen faithfully to it, it will convince us of the truth about Jesus. It will convict us of our sin. It will lead us to an ever deeper dependence upon Jesus Christ in everything we do, in every place we go. And this is why all of us need to be here on Sunday mornings. Oh, I knew he was going there. (laughs) But I really believe that, friends. We need each other. This place here where we gather for worship on Sunday morning, you know, when we gather for, oh, and and we gather more than once or twice a month. Some of you aren't aware of that, but the, you know, statistics actually show not making this up, statistics actually show that average attendance of someone who calls themselves an evangelical or a Christian, a Christ follower, is uh, about twice a month nowadays. There's a word for that. Suck. That sucks. That's really sucky. That says something terrible about us. That that's our priorities, friends. That we gather when it's just convenient or other things don't take precedent. No, we actually need to gather every week. This is what Jesus did. This is what Jesus says. See, it's not about convenience. It's about covenant. Jesus has entered into a covenant with us. A covenant where, oh, by the way, he died and he bled so that we could live and wouldn't have to bleed. He's entered into covenant with us. And he calls us into his presence week after week. You know, we, we need to come here to worship and grow grateful hearts and hear this dangerous book called the Bible be taught because this is a book that teaches us Jesus. And if that's not your practice or your priority and you're a follower of Jesus, well, you need to change your priorities, friends. Nobody amen that. Let me mention one more thing quickly, a third thing that Jesus uses to convince people that he is indeed alive. And this is actually amazing, really. This is amazing, but it's true. And that is this, Jesus uses you and me. He uses us individually. 
but also us collectively as a church body. He uses the lives of committed followers to convince a spiritually dying and decaying world that he is in fact alive. That he is the solution to all of our deepest problems. Let me explain. You know, it's amazing how God will put a Jesus follower in the path of someone that he is effectually calling, in the path of someone he's trying to reach, someone he is calling to himself, and Jesus will use that person, that follower, their, their integrity or their humility or their truthfulness. Maybe they're caring, maybe they're serving, maybe they're loving, maybe they're forgiving attitudes, maybe they're hard work, they're less than perfect efforts to follow him, their repentance. Jesus will use these things to represent himself to somebody he's calling into his family. An opportunity to serve someone leads to a conversation about why. Why are you doing this? Why are you helping? Next thing you know, you're talking about Jesus. And this is not something, of course, that we do alone. We're not expected to to be a witness to the dying world alone. This is something we do together as a community. This is why at some point uh, invitations happen. What I mean is God doesn't expect you all by yourself to be a witness for Jesus. God gives you a whole family, a weird family, admittedly, but a whole family to help you live out and witness your your faith to others. And that family is called the church. You know who made the church? Jesus. What was he thinking? I mean, churches can be, you know, we're a group of people who aren't perfect and we shouldn't pretend to be. That's the understatement of of the day right there. We're so not perfect. Friends, this you understand too, because Jesus created the church and wants the church to represent him to others. This is why here at Deer Creek Church, we plant churches. This is why, because churches are groups of people studying God's word together. What do they do? They receive the sacraments together. Uh, They do ministry together. They do life together. They pray and serve and love their neighbors together. All very, very, very imperfectly, I might add. And so we repent together. A church is a community that keeps working at building healthier relationships, healthier marriages. Healthier parents, healthier children, healthier workers, healthier students. In churches, you find people serious about following Jesus. Serious about obeying him and repenting when we don't. Serious about sharing our faith in Jesus with others. Not in some pushy or off-putting kind of way. I don't mean that at all. God will put you in proximity to someone who needs to know more about Jesus just so you'll live your life out in front of them in ways that delight and honor him. God wants us to be the demonstration that Jesus is alive. Friends, every time we as a church get to help someone or help a family in Jesus' name, every time also we gather for worship and we give God thanks and praise and we confess our sins and we study his word and we celebrate Jesus' forgiveness and we partake of the sacrament. Understand, we are demonstrating in all of that that Jesus is alive. He is God. He deserves to be worshiped. He deserves to be our priority. It's like, you know, we become a living testimony that what the Bible says is true. And all of this means that your life, think of this, your life, your practices, your priorities, your participation in the church, in the body of Christ is the witness to your neighbors and your classmates and your work associates. 
that he is risen. So don't hide who you are. We're tempted to sometimes as our culture becomes increasingly uh, hostile uh, in, in ever so, you know, I think in small increments. But as that happens, our, our tendency would be to hide who we are, what we believe, how we live. Don't do that. God forbid. You know, talk about your faith when it's appropriate, when someone wants to know. Invite your friends who don't know Jesus into your life into your thoughts, into your practices, into your priorities. Invite them to join you here. This is what Jesus' followers have always done. Do you know that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth and he talked about people, he called them outsiders. He said they're outsiders. When you gather for worship, he said they're outsiders there. Uh, Paul wanted uh, what we do in worship to be done decently and in order so that when outsiders are with us in our worship, they can understand what the heck we're talking about. Paul says this, uh, when they understand the message, he says in uh, 1 Corinthians 14, he says, an outsider is convicted by all, uh, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. That can happen, does happen, has always happened when Christians gather to worship. And here's the deal, friends, Jesus uses you and me your life, my life, your walk, my walk, your faith journey, your repentance, your relationship with him to convince others that he is alive. Wow. <laughs> Jesus uses your church, its worship, its teaching, its service to call people to himself. It's amazing. He could do it, I am sure, in far more efficient ways. <laughs> I'm sure that's true. But he doesn't. He uses us. It's amazing. So question, are you living your life fully aware that you are his witness? Are you loving people and serving people and praying for people and inviting people in Jesus' name, letting God use you to call others to faith? And I don't, I don't say this at all to induce guilt. I say this to highlight privilege. I mean, we have a privilege Get, get this, I don't have to know the answer to all of your questions. I just have to let you see my faith in Jesus. That's what witnessing is. And so this isn't a matter of guilt, it's a matter of privilege. It's a matter of living my life with that awareness that I represent him to others. Now, how do we respond? Well, glad you asked. We come to this table. We come to this table. We repent of our sin where we need to repent of our sin. We receive his overflowing mercy and grace. And we do this because he's alive. In fact, this meal is a celebration of the fact that he died. He died for us, but he didn't stay dead. He came back to life. And it doesn't even stop there. He, he then tells us he's coming back. He's going to return. All of these things we remember in this meal. Let me just put on some perfume here. <laughs> Jesus in the upper room with his disciples, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread is my body. Broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
And then he took the wine and the cup and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And then he gave it to his disciples. And that's really the key important factor here. To partake of this meal, you need to be a disciple. You need to be a follower. You need to repent of your sins. You need to acknowledge that he died for you and that he's not dead today. He's alive and that he's coming back again. And and it's in that place of faith that we come to this table. We partake of the, the body and the blood of Jesus Christ and we are fed spiritually. That's how this works. So we invite you to partake if you know Jesus. And if you don't, we just encourage you to keep processing, keep thinking, keep opening yourself up to the convincing ministry of Jesus. So pray with me. I'm going to set these elements aside for their special purpose and representing to us the body and the blood of Jesus. And then you'll get up out of your seats and uh, come forward and there'll be somebody up here that will uh, offer you the bread and you can take the cup. There's the uh, gold trays up here or juice and the silver trays uh, are wine. There's also, um, I believe, gluten-free uh, wafers up here as well. Let me pray. Father, it is with grateful, grateful hearts that we come to this table. Uh, we remember the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And we are so thankful that he is not dead today. We are thankful for the life that is pictured, embodied, even imparted to us in this sacrament. When we come to this table in faith, would you give us faith, greater faith? Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for meeting us in this meal. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.